Well, every once in a while, I wonder what I would have or what I would own if I didn't know what everybody else owned and what everybody else had. And I wonder sometimes how much influence what you have has on what I have. And I also wonder sometimes what I would want if I didn't know what everybody else already had. Sometimes I wonder how much more money I would have saved if I didn't know what you spent yours on and if I didn't know what everybody else had spent their money on. And then sometimes, in the deep recesses of my soul, I wonder how much more money I would have given away to people who have less than I have if I didn't know what the people who have more than I have had. My problem is that I know too much. And I know too much about what others have and too much about what they have that I don't. And the interesting thing is, this information makes me dangerously discontent. In fact, this information has the potential to take me off a cliff on one side or into a wall on the other side. It lures me toward the edge of financial ruin. It lures me toward the edge of too much credit card debt or bad decisions or bad purchases. I wasted money and now I'm finding myself in really dangerous financial situations. And specifically, it feeds an internal appetite. Now, appetites are kind of a funny thing because they're never fully and finally satisfied. You satisfy them for a few minutes And the next thing you know, you're walking over to the fridge and saying, oh, I wonder what I could have. You never fully and finally satisfy an appetite, and my appetite for stuff just continues to grow. And it's never fully and finally satisfied. So basically, I think I need counseling. (laughs) And I should probably make an appointment for most of you. What did you say that's true? Today we're talking about guardrails. This is our fourth message in the series on guardrails, and in case you haven't been here, or in case you've always just wanted to know what is a guardrail, all right, here's the definition. Some of you have already had it memorized. A guardrail, it's a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And as we learned, and, and you know this now, guardrails are never placed in the danger zones. They're placed in the safety zones. And guardrails are designed to minimize damage. You know, there's going to be some damage, but it minimizes the damage. We've said that guardrails are designed to direct us and to protect us. But the point of the series is that the highway is not the only place we need guardrails. In fact, you could have avoided your greatest regret if only you had guardrails. Maybe some financial guardrails, moral guardrails, relational guardrails. Maybe some guardrails in your marriage or in your job or in your school. When we talk about guardrails in this capacity, we're talking about financial rules. I'm sorry, personal rules of behavior or personal standards of behavior. You've got yours and I've got mine. And I don't have any right in the world to tell you what yours should be. But I encourage you to set some up. These are personal rules or a standard of behavior that becomes a matter of conscience. 
In other words, I decide how far I'm going to allow myself to drift in this direction. And when I begin to drift in unhealthy or dangerous directions, alarms go off in my heart and in my soul. And I go, wait a minute, John. You're moving too close or you're moving too far away. The point of a guardrail is to actually light up our conscience before we hurt ourselves or before we hurt other people. So today, I want to talk specifically about financial guardrails. Now, if you're not a Christian, what I'm about to say is so important, and I hope you'll listen real carefully. If you're not a Christian, we're going to look at some things Jesus says. And if you're not a Jesus follower, Jesus has no authority over you. So consequently, don't feel like I'm trying to get you to do something um, that you don't want to do. Okay? I'm not trying to guilt you into something because I have no authority over your life. You're a free agent. You can do whatever you want to do. But for those of us who are Christians, we've already signed on. It's too late. You have to do this if you're a Christian. Now, just to let you off the hook, most Christians don't do what Jesus is going to ask us to do in this message. You're in the majority, but you may be in danger. This is so interesting. As a pastor and as someone who works with church people all over the country, when people come in with challenges in their lives or when they want to talk about their kids or something that is kind of dark and they're a little afraid and maybe they've never told anybody before, do you know that in most of those instances, it has something to do with either sex or money? But the fascinating thing is this. Those are the two areas of New Testament teaching from Jesus and his apostles that are most disregarded. They are the two areas, sex and money, where people have the greatest inclination to say, yeah, I don't want to listen to that. And that's why what we're going to talk about today is so important. And yet, there's something potentially on the inside of you that's going to want to stiff arm it. And I understand that, especially if you're not a religious person, because the word on the street is, you know, church is against sex, and the church just wants my money. That's kind of our reputation. Now, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, you may recall that Amber spent a lot of time talking about sex. Now, that's great for me at home, okay? A little awkward at church. One of the things she made clear was that church, the church is not against sex, okay? God is not against sex. God created that. And when it comes to money, the church doesn't need your money. And the church doesn't want your money. Or the church shouldn't, because here's the deal. Jesus didn't want your money, doesn't need your money either. But we're going to discover that Jesus wants something for you as it relates to your money. And any good church that's trying to organize itself around the teachings of Jesus wants something for you as it relates to your money. They don't just want your money. Now, when I say financial guardrails, I'm not talking about how to stay out of debt. Okay, there's a lot of programs to help out with that. And this isn't about how to avoid bankruptcy either. And that's a good thing to avoid, but this isn't about that. This is talking about something much, much deeper. In fact, you could be completely out of debt. You could have lots and lots of money in the bank and still be in a ditch financially. You could have your house paid off, your cars paid off. You could have your kid's college fund fully supplied. You could be golden financially. And according to Jesus, you could still run your financial car off the road and put it in a ditch. 
Because when it comes to money, Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. And that's why it's so fabulous. Here's what he said. One day, Jesus is teaching, and he says this. No one can serve two masters. To which, when I read that, I shrug and say, I don't even have one master. What are you talking about? But you see, Jesus is shrewd, and he's baiting us in. And he says this, either, talking about masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. Now, the little Greek word that's translated master is a very interesting little Greek word because when we think about master, we think about a boss. This isn't about a boss. This was someone who owned someone. And Jesus is saying this is an issue of possession or ownership. In other words, you can't be possessed except by one thing. He says you can only be owned or be the possession of one person or one entity or one thing. You can only have one owner. Again, we say, well, that's fascinating. That's interesting. It's logical. But nobody and nothing owns me. And besides, what are you talking about? And we would expect him to say, nobody can serve two masters. You can either serve God or Satan. But Jesus doesn't say that. Because Jesus is shrewd. He's the smartest person to, to have ever lived. And here's what he says. He says, you cannot serve God and money or God and wealth. In fact, the little Greek word can mean stuff. You can't serve God and your stuff. You can't serve God and money. Now this, this is so fascinating because where he goes from here underscores the, import, the most important point. Here's what Jesus is saying. The primary issue regarding money for Jesus isn't the money. The primary issue when it comes to money is mastery, control, ownership. The question that Jesus wonders about as it relates to our personal lives is this. Do we have money or does money have us? Do we own it or does it own us? Do we possess and use it or does it possess and use us? And the reason we need financial guardrails is that money and what money promises is the chief competitor for your heart and my heart. Money and what money promises is the number one competitor for ownership over my heart with God. And without guardrails of some sort, you may never declare bankruptcy. You may never have overwhelming credit card debts. You may be so good with your money, you may need to be the person who teaches about money at this church. But his point is simply this. Without guardrails, you're either going to veer off the cliff of consumption or you're going to wreck your financial future into the wall of hoarding. One is unbridled desire. Consume, 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 upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. The other is unbridled fear. What if I don't have enough? What if we don't have enough? And the root cause for both of these is the same thing. And it's a word that we really don't like. It's a word that we can't see in the mirror. 
And it's the word greed. Andy Stanley is a pastor of a church in Atlanta. And he defined greed as this. He says, greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. So what is greed? Greed isn't mysterious. Greed isn't some miserly guy counting his gold in some secret vault as he plans to spend it all on himself. We sort of relegate greed to someone we don't know or someone we won't be. But greed is simply the assumption that if it's placed in my hands, it's for me. If it's in my checking account, it's for me. If it goes into my 401k, it's for me. If it's part of my paycheck or my bonus, it's for me. If it's part of my inheritance, it's for me. If I win the lottery, obviously it was God's will. What are the odds of that? It's for me. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. And if I choose out of the compassion that occasionally bubbles up in me to give some of what I have made to somebody else, and I hope God's watching, so I'm going to give in slow motion in case he gets distracted. God, did you see that? I just gave. Okay? And maybe that's what some of you do with the baskets. It's like most of you pass them real quick, but every once in a while, you know, there's this kind of like the slow passing. All right, I'm going to pass the basket. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It's consume now, spending. Consume later, hoarding. Consume now, it's for me, spend. Consume later, it's because I'm a hoarder. Either way, it's for me now, it's for me later. And here's the tragedy. And you've probably never thought about it this way, because who has time to think about this stuff? Okay? But when you live that way, whether you're a Christian or not, you are living as if there is no God. You are living as if all there is to this life is this life. When Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, his whole point was, if all there is to this life is this life, you know, that's why Ecclesiastes is so hard for us to understand. In other words, in this life, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. And when it's over, it's over. And who cares what your kids think about you when you're gone? I mean, you're gone. And who cares about your legacy? You're gone. And all the people who have a bad attitude about you because all you did was consume and hoard, you know, who cares? You know, because soon enough, they're going to be gone too. So eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. All there is to this life is this life. If that's what you believe, then eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. But if there's something inside of you, even if it's not the Christian version, if there's something in you that you just had the suspicion that there has to be more to this life and there has to be something beyond this life, then you dare not allow your life to be driven by consumption or hoarding because you're living as if there is no God. It's about me now or it's about me later. But then, at some point, something interesting happens to all of us. Trouble comes along. Trouble that you created, or maybe it's trouble that somebody else created. Maybe your spending got out of control, and you bought too much house, or you bought too much car, or maybe you took out too many loans. 
Or maybe there's financial trouble that somebody else created. Somebody laid you off. Somebody lied to you. A partner took the money and ran, and it had nothing to do with you. But either way, if you're not very religious, do you know what we do when suddenly we find ourselves in financial trouble? We do the strangest thing. We pray. And when you pray, and here's what you're praying, you're saying, Dear God, I would like to invite you into my finances because I have a problem. This is an invitation for God to get involved with your money. Whether you need a job, or you need a break, or you need a consolidation loan, or you need mercy at work, whatever it is, it's God, I'm inviting you into this area of my life because I may have chosen the wrong master. And here's my question. If you think that you'd invite God into your finances when a problem surfaces, why wouldn't you go ahead and invite him in now? Before there's a problem. Why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you invite him to be the master now? Because you know, if things get out of control, whether you're a praying person or not, you're going to pray that God would get involved if things go the wrong way. The guardrail against greed, the way that you invite God in now before there's a tragedy, the way that you set yourself up for success, whether you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, the way that you do that is by reprioritizing. And this is what Jesus teaches about. And this is what I'm going to show you where he says in just a minute. If you're living like most people, your finances look like this. And this is what it looks like to be mastered by money. Here's why I say that. Live, save, give. I'm just going to live and spend my money on me. And if I have a plan at work, I may be saving along the way. And then if there's any left over, or if I feel really compassionate, you know, if there's a flood or a tsunami or an earthquake, or there's somebody in need in my community uh, that is in need, then I'll give if I have some left over. But I'm going to live, save, give. Me first, me second, Everybody else, including what God is doing in the world through the church, third. And when you live this way, you are mastered because you are living as if there's no more to life than this life. You are living as if God has no interest or no idea of what's going on in your life financially. And this is how most people live they live, they save, and then give. But when Jesus comes along and says, if you want me to be the master of your life, you have to embrace the way that I see the world and my values. And when you do, you're going to flip this over. This is how you master your money. You give first, you save second, and you live on the rest. You give first to somebody else first, you save second, and then you live on the rest. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you ever give any money to this church or not, I'm telling you, you do this, and you will send me a thank you note later. I'm just telling you, this works, and this came from Jesus. Amber and I have some experience with this. When our kids were old enough to understand, we put three jars in their room, and I brought them here today. 
Okay? And we label these three jars. Give, save, and spend. And we taught the kids as soon as they could understand, when you do chores or when you have a birthday or when your grandparents come over, because grandparents usually like to spoil the kids, you're going to get some money. But whether, whenever you get money, we want you to put 10% in give, 10% in save, and then the rest is your money. You can do whatever you want to do with it. Now, here's my question to you. Why in the world would we teach our kids to give first, save second, and spend third? Is it because we wanted to deny their every hope and desire? No. Despite what they may think, that's no. It's because we didn't want our kids to be mastered by money. Because I know where that leads. We all know, to some extent, where that leads. This is the key to financial independence. Independence from the belief that life equals stuff. People who live as if life equals stuff live as if there is no God. And here's the thing. Come on. No matter what you have, there's always some level of discontent. There's no amount of stuff that makes you completely content. But why? Because it's an appetite. And when you're driven by your appetite, unhealthy things happen. And let me just tell you, most of you are going to run out of time before you run out of stuff. You know what that means? It means you've lived life as if it was stuff. And it's not. Your life is time. Your stuff is your stuff. Why would you live as if life is stuff? And why would you allow your stuff to master you and control you? And we didn't want our kids to grow up that way. We didn't want them growing up thinking that way. Because that it results in financial independence. In the sense that it's independence from a lifestyle that relegates God to emergencies. God, you stay over there in the corner. And if I need you, I'll get you. I didn't want my kids living that way. I want to invite them. I want them to invite God into every area of their life. Including the financial part of their life. Independence from this, it's really independence from a life independent of God. Independence from this is really independence from a life independent of God. That's what this habit does. This habit ensures that you don't have to live your life independent of God because for the rest of my life and my kid's life and the rest of your life, money is going to compete for first place. And money and stuff is going to compete for your heart and for my heart. And I don't want money to win with them. And I don't want money to win with you either. But who cares what I think? Your heavenly father doesn't want money to win either. And I don't want my kids to grow up having to choose between money or their personal peace. I don't want them to prioritize money over their marriages or their health or over their children. I don't want them to be slaves to consumption. You know, I want them to have stuff. I just don't want their stuff to have them. You give first, you save second, and you live on the rest. That's how you do it. Remember the words of Jesus when he said, no one can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then a few minutes later, in the same sermon, he says this. So, in light of that, 
don't worry saying, what are we going to eat? Now, you know what we, you know, we don't worry about what we're going to eat because we have refrigeration, okay? But in the ancient world, the only thing they kept for very long was grain and wine. Everything else spoiled pretty quickly. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? And Jesus is saying, look, I know you think about this stuff. I know you worry about this stuff all the time. But he says, I don't want you to do that. And here's why. Because when you worry about the future, here's what you're going to do with your hands and your heart. You're going to close them. And if you're going to be a, my follower, you cannot live a life with closed hands and a closed heart. He says, besides that, for the pagans run after all these things. You don't want to be a pagan, do you? Now, we use the term pagan differently than how Jesus used it. A pagan in the first century was basically anybody who believed in the gods, plural, as opposed to one god. So for the Jewish people, anybody who wasn't Jewish was a pagan because they believed in many gods. And the gods could care less about people. The gods toyed with people. The gods manipulated people. So the pagans were constantly trying to bribe the gods to do their bidding. And Jesus says, look, if you worry all the time, you're living like the pagans that don't have to do and that don't care about anything for them. They don't believe that there's a personal God actually involved in their life. And this is the game changer right here. Your heavenly father knows what you need, that you need all that stuff. Your heavenly father knows that you need all that stuff. Now here's the thing. Christians, do you believe that? Jesus said, Jesus said it, okay? Not me. Jesus said it. And Jesus said to his audience that our heavenly father knows what we need. If your heavenly father knows what you need, do you have to worry? And Jesus says, no. And I'm telling you, the moment that you wrap your heart and your belief system around the fact that God knows what you need, you have, in that moment, earned the opportunity and the right to keep your hands wide open. But, he says, but instead of worrying, instead of hoarding, instead of consuming, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you're not going to worry anymore. Here's, gonna, here's how you're going to know that I care. Here's how you are going to know that I'm involved. But seek first. That is, reprioritize, reorder, rearrange, rethink. Okay? But seek first. And then he refers to his Father in heaven. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, this word just throws us off every time because we don't live in a literal kingdom. So sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that word kingdom. Here's what Jesus is saying, and this is so, so important. He's saying, I want you. I want you to seek the kingdom of my Father. And my Father's kingdom is an others first kingdom. If you're going to follow me, it's about others first. He's an others first king who dwells and has created and is developing an others first kingdom. And the reason it's his righteousness is because Jesus taught throughout his ministry that what's right for other people is what's right. What's best for others, other people is what's best. The kingdom of God is an others first kingdom. That's all about doing right for other people. 
And so Jesus says, look, if you're going to invite me into that area of your life, if you're going to ask me to be in control of your finances, you need to know where this is going to go. You need to know where this is going to take you. One day, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem with his disciples. It was towards the end of his ministry. All the way to Jerusalem, those guys are going along, and they don't want to go because they know that Jesus is going to get arrested, and if Jesus gets arrested, then they may get arrested too, and that's just going to make for a bad day altogether. But they're thinking, well, maybe he's not going to get arrested. Well, you know, maybe he's going to get there and go, ta-da, and he's going to rip open his robe, and there's going to be a big M on his chest for Messiah, and he's going to take over, and he's going to run Rome off. And the Pharisees are going to say, oh my goodness, we're so sorry. What were we thinking? And Jesus is going to take the Temple Mount, and maybe that'll be the moment that we're all waiting for. And so they're having this conversation behind Jesus about, okay, so when Jesus takes his throne, when he's the new king of Israel, what about all those little thrones? Who's going to be on the left? Who's going to be on the right? Who's going to be close to the guy? So they're arguing about which of them is going to be on the left and the right, and Jesus overhears this, and he turns around and goes, all right, time out. All right, everybody, under the sycamore tree, have a seat. We got to talk. Okay, I might have made that last part up. But he has them, and he stops them on their way to Jerusalem, and this is a big, big deal. He says, okay, let's go over this one more time. My kingdom is not like those other kingdoms. He says, come on, you've been around. You know uh, that uh, those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Just this little Greek term that means they use their power selfishly, lord it over them. It's an abusive power. He says, you know the Gentile rulers abuse their power. They leverage their power for their own benefits. And their high officials do the same thing. They exercise authority over them. And again, this is such a bland way of translating this. His point was, you know how this works in the world. Whoever gets in charge is in charge. And everybody has to do what they're told to do. And you know how this works. And they're like, yeah, we know how it works, Jesus. That's why we want to be number two and number three, because you're number one. And you know how this works. And then Jesus looks him in the eye and he says this, not so with you. Not so You want to be a part of my kingdom? You want to be a part of my Father's kingdom? That's not how it works. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, then you must become the servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. You want to be great in my kingdom? You want to be great in my economy? You want to be great in the world that I'm here to create? Then don't try to get in first place. You look for a way to get in last place and serve everybody else along the way. And before they can even raise an objection, Jesus says, for even the Son of Man, talking about himself, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And they cringed when he said this, and to give his life a ransom for many. Hey guys, you think you want to be better than me? Ooh, no, not you, Jesus. We're not better than you. Then get to the back of the line because that's where I'm headed. That's why we're going to Jerusalem. I'm about to do for the whole world what I'm going to turn around and ask the whole world to do for one another. My friends, that changed the world. And it could change the world again.
Selflessness would change everything. Selflessness would solve everything. Selflessness would solve everything. Welcome to the kingdom of God. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and then relax because all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, if you put others first in your finances as evidence of the fact that you put God first, then you've invited God in. When you put other people and what God is doing in the world first in your finances, that's an invitation. Because what you've done, when you put God first, is you're saying, God, you first, me second. He says, hey, that's the key to my kingdom. That's what I'm all about. Remember the famous, the most famous verse in the whole Bible? For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only son. That he gave, that he gave, that he gave. He says, welcome to my kingdom. He said, and I will take care of you because I know what you need. The way that you make sure that you have your money, but your money doesn't have you, is that you seek first with your money the kingdom of God. You know, one of the only drawbacks to online giving and text-to-give giving is that we leave people with the wrong impression. That's because there's hardly anything in the, in the baskets as they go by. In fact, some of you may be like, oh, what's going on in this place? I mean, how are they even keeping the doors open? There's nothing in the buckets. And it's because you're surrounded by some very generous people who've done what I did and set up automated giving. And I love automated giving because I know how that when I get paid, the very first dollars that come out of that paycheck go to your church and to my church. I love that. This is my way of saying, God, you and your kingdom are first. God, you first, me second. Oh God, you know, it's so easy to pray that. You know, oh God, you're the most important thing in my life. And he's like, show me the money. No, he's not really like that. Okay, that's Jerry Maguire. But isn't it easy? Isn't it easy? It's like, oh God, I love you. And I want to sing some songs to you. I even downloaded one of them on my phone. It's like, oh, I love, love, love you. And God's like, come on, hey, open your eyes. Quit being so holy. Look, you and I both know how this works. The chief competitor for your heart isn't the kind of music that you listen to. The chief competitor for your heart is your stuff. When you put me first with your stuff, when you put other people first with your stuff and money, then I'll know. And it's not because I need it. It's because I love you and I know what's best for you. And this is how you guard your heart. And this is how you set up guardrails for yourself. You give first, you save second, And then you live on the rest. Here's what I want you to do. Okay? If you're a Christian, you really got to do this. All right? If you're not a Christian, you should do it anyway. All right? And I promise you, even if you're not a Christian, six months from now, 12 months from now, you think that was the greatest financial decision I've ever made. 
You need to pick a percentage of your income ahead of time and just decide it's going away as soon as you get it in. Whatever percentage is, it doesn't need to be 10%. You know, you don't need to jump right in at that level. You know, if that's too big of a jump. But uh, don't go lower than five because you won't even feel that effect on you. Okay? But you need to pick a percentage and give it first. And if you're a Christian, you've got to fund what God's doing all over the world. And everybody should have a plan for how they plan to support their local church. Even if you don't go to church. Because one day, you know, something's going to happen and you're going to need a church. And they're going to be there before, for you because somebody funded it. Everybody should have a plan for how they plan to support their local church. Pick a percentage and figure out a way to get that percentage out of your world into someone else's world before you spend the next dime. Pick one or two nonprofits, a couple charities that you love, someone that's doing stuff that's near and dear to your heart, maybe with children or foster kids or education or whatever it is. Listen, don't wait to be asked. That's what the pagans do. It is. Everybody gives when there's an emergency. Be different. Find organizations you love and start sending them money every single month, regardless of whether or not there's an emergency, regardless of whether or not they ask. And then, when there is an emergency, you'll have been there before the emergency. Don't wait to be asked. Pick a percentage of your money and decide where it's going and let it go. And then save. This is also helping people in the future because you don't want your kids or your grandkids to have to take care of you. This is a way of loving other people by preparing for your own future. And then just consume your heart out with the rest. Just live on it. And this is how you stay between the guardrails. And this is how you guard against not financial disaster. This is how you guard against greed. And that's how you ensure that you have, you have your money, but that your money doesn't have you. Now, I can't finish a message like this without telling something to all of you. And that's this. Thank you. The reason why we're able to do what we do in this community and in this country and all over the world is because of your generosity. And I feel a little bit like when I, I preach this kind of a message that I'm preaching to the choir because so many of you get this. And I don't want to sound ungrateful because so many of you were either raised to do this or you took a chance and a few years ago you became a percentage giver. And I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for those of you who are doing automated giving as well. Your automated giving, like my family does, is what allows us to plan better and stay within the budget for the next year. And if you're not doing automated giving, I want to invite you to discuss it as a family and consider starting this month. Last thing on generosity. Our benevolence fund is down to zero. Uh, this is the fund that's used to help people who are truly in need. 
And just this past week, we got word of a family that is living in a tent at El Dorado Lake. This is a dad and a mom and two kids living in a tent in freezing temperatures. And we'd like to help cover some of their expenses. But we need your help first. And there's a basket in the back of the sanctuary. And I'd like to invite you to consider giving before you leave today. And this is not a part of your regular offering. Okay? This is above and beyond. By contributing to our benevolence fund, you are seeking first someone else's welfare above your own. And this, my friends, is what the kingdom of God is all about. So thank you in advance for your generosity. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, this is not an easy topic to talk about. It's the one we're most likely to stiff arm. But part of your will for us is to set up guardrails with our finances. Would you help us guard against greed? Would you help us to live with open hands and open hearts? Would you help us to dwell in your other's first kingdom? God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for your generous grace, your love, and your provision in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, I would like to invite our ushers forward as we prepare for our offering. And I'll say that um, um, gosh oh man it's been a rough last few weeks I've had a rough rough time and you don't know anything about that and it's okay um I felt really convicted as I prepared the message for today. I just think this is so important. And I can say that ordering your finances and an other's first kingdom is one of the best things that I've done uh, for my family and for other people. And I really hope that you um, take some time to consider doing the same. Uh, this is all out of an act of worship with God. Like I said, I mean, the, the church doesn't need your money. This is ordering your life in a way that will change it. And I've experienced that, and I know that to be true. And I want the same for you. And so I hope you consider doing that. Let's pray one more time. Oh, God, I thank you so much for the work that you are doing in the midst of this church, in the midst of our lives.
God, you are so good. You provide in such powerful ways, unexpected ways. God, we don't want to take that for granted. Help us to live lives with open hands and open hearts. We love you. Amen.